0: Today we're going to go back to creation. would have been something to have been there at the creation at the first, but here's what we're going to read. Genesis uh, chapter 2, 1 through 25. Let's stand. It's a reading of God's Word. Heaven and earth and everything in them were finished. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. On the seventh day He stopped the work He had been doing. Then God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy because on that day He stopped all His work on creation. This is the account of heaven and earth when they were created at the time when the Lord God made earth and heaven. While bushes and plants were not on the earth yet because the Lord God had, hadn't sent rain on the earth. Also there was no one to... Farmed the land. Instead, underground water would come up from the earth and water the entire surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and blew the breath of life into his nostril. The man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. That's where he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God made all the trees grow out of the ground. These trees were nice to look at, and their fruit was good to eat. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil grew in the middle of the ground. A river flowed from Eden to water the garden. Outside the garden, it divided into four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. This is this is the one that winds through Havla, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure, uh, Belium and oxen are also found there. The name of the second river is Pishon. Gishon, this is the one that winds through Sudan. The name of the third river is Tigris. This is the one that flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to farm the land and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded a man. He said, you, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must never eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, Is it not good for man to be alone? I will make a helper who is right for him. The Lord God had formed all the wild animals and all the birds out of the ground. Then he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called, each creature became its name. So the man named all the domestic animals, all the birds, and all the wild animals. But the the man found no helper who was right for him. So the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. While the man was sleeping, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God formed a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be named woman because she was taken from man. That is why a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and they will become
1: one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, but they weren't ashamed of it. Well, good morning to all of you. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1. It's back up a chapter. We're going to start there, and we'll get into chapter 2 here in just a little bit. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to talk today about the foundation of God's design. The foundation of God's design. We've been talking about in this series, as we're leading up to uh, Ephesians two five 5.22 and following, about God's plan for men and women. And how does He have us to where we interact with one another? What is the, the nature of our relationship? And so we're going back here initially to talk about what's the foundation of all of that? What is it that Paul and, and the others are building upon? And so we go back to the beginning, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, we're looking at how God laid out His design, His original design in Genesis 1 and 2. Over a century ago, feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she believed that the Bible was an obstacle to women's rights. And so she argued in her women's Bible that the, quote, wily writer of Genesis 2, so she's already you know, showing you what she thinks about this, the wily writer of Genesis 2 was trying to put women in their place in order to subvert the presentation of men and women as equals in Genesis 1. And so Stanton believed that Genesis 1, and she liked what it said there, because she saw that it was saying men and women are equal and the same. Okay, So, in other words, their roles are interchangeable, reversible. That was her view. But she felt like the writer of Genesis 2 comes along and ruined that. And, of course, this is all built on, on the, the liberalism of the 1800s. And, of course, she was in the late 1800s. And she's standing on their shoulders. And they, they tried to chop up God's Word and say, well, you know, M- Moses maybe didn't write any of this. Maybe he wrote chapter 1, so we'll accept that. Chapter 2, some other guy comes in, you know, and brings his ideas and his chauvinistic ideas in. And, and, and so that's what she's talking about and what she is drawing upon. What does Genesis 1 and 2 actually teach? We're going to discover that Genesis 1 and 2 teach that God created mankind in His image as male and female to rule the earth together. God created mankind in His image as male and female to rule earth together. And as head, man's role is to lead. And as helper, woman's role is to provide what man lacks. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And I'll show you today from the Word of God in Genesis 1 and 2. Both man and woman are equally created in the image of God. And and God gave them both this responsibility. He assigned them to exercise dominion over the earth. Well, we love Genesis for a lot of reasons, at least those of us who love the Bible and, and believe the Bible, because it's a book of beginnings, I and mean, that's why it's named that, right? And there are a lot of different historical accounts, the background that Moses gives us, he gave originally to God's people Israel, to show them, okay, you need to understand some... Uh, why we find ourselves here today, as they did there in the wilderness as a people having been led out of Egypt. So they needed to understand the beginnings of things like, and we're going to see, um, we see in in the first couple chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the universe, earthly life, humanity, the beginning of the two sexes, and so on. But along with that historical information, Genesis also provides us the, the foundation of rich theological truths. And we're going to look at some of those today. It teaches us, among those truths, God is the sovereign creator. Man was created for God's glory, not for his own. God established marriage and family. God designed the order and roles for men and women. So, look with me now, and let's read Genesis 1, and listen as I read, verses 26 to 28. be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first thing we want to say as we break this down is this. The image of God is reflected in our maleness and our femaleness. So we find that right off the bat. He, says he created man, mankind in his image, in his likeness. He adds another word to help us understand this. And he did that by making them male and female. And a couple things to point out, so that you see what is going on here, that this is more than just an an historical account of, okay, this is what happened. Uh, There's so much more going on here. First, regarding the rest of creation we didn't read that today but we read it last time uh, and, and you've read it before I'm sure that in Genesis 1 where Moses walks us through where God created day by day everything that he created in this in, in all of his creation and when he did for all of those things he says let there be and then named whatever it was that God was creating at that point on that day let there be. But it becomes very personal when he creates man because he doesn't say, let there be man. He says, let us make man in our image. You see, so that's profound, the change there. Another thing to point out is that for the other creatures, they are made, as Moses would say, after its kind. And so, you know, God created the different, you know, species and everything, He created them after their kind. But. And even though that is true of man, that isn't what he said. For man, instead of saying he was created after its kind, he says he was created in God's image. See, again, a very profound theological truth there. We humans are not like the rest of creation in this way. We're created to be like God in that sense, to be like him in his image. Man is the height of God's creative work. And you get that in Genesis 1 as he's going through day by day. And then, you know, the pinnacle of that work is man. We get a glimpse here of male headship. And as we go through these first two chapters, and we're just going to touch on the, um, the relevant passages. We can't go through all of it right now. But I'm going to point out uh, where it does show male headship in contrast to uh, feminists like uh, Ms. Staten Stanton said, and others, who, uh, their day and our day, we do see male headship. And here in chapter 1, the man's name is Adam. And his name is what God gave to the whole human race, to mankind, both male and female. So, Adam, and Adam is from the Hebrew word Adam, and Adam is the word for man. Okay, is one of the words for man, and that is used so much here. So, mankind, he calls Adam, and the male, he calls Adam, or we say Adam, okay? This is even clearer. Turn over to to Genesis 5, just a few pages, Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. Genesis 5.2, Moses writes that God created them male and female and he blessed them and he named them Adam in the day when they were created. He named them man. He named them, both male and female, after the man. And, of course, you know, our language, you know, follows that as well. Because we will say, we, we refer to, I know people today, you know, out there, they, they get kind of creeped out by that. And, oh, no, we should say, you know, person or something like that. Um, but in our, historically, in her language, we even will do that, you know. We'll say, what is the chief end of man, right? And, And we do that in English, and other languages do the same thing. In naming them man, God designated the male as head. Now, that by itself may not be that convincing to you, but hang in there. There's still a lot more, which altogether is very clear. Adam is the one who represented our race, not Eve. And you can go to Romans 5, where Paul there is developing that thought. Because Adam is, is, was the head of our race, and of course it was in Adam that we all fell into sin. And in a few weeks we'll, we'll get to that when we get to Genesis 3. But even though Eve was the first one to sin, she did not represent us. Adam did. And so Adam is called out there, you know, the first Adam, as Paul will say in Romans 5. And then the second Adam, Jesus, who comes and he being the head of his people, those of us who are believers in him. So talking about just briefly this idea of the image of God, the triune creator said, let us make man in our image, So, like God, there are a lot of ways in which we are like Him, what we call the communicable attributes, those things that that can be true of us, that are possible to be true of us. Like, uh, you know, to be infinite, that's incommunicable. We're not infinite, okay? Um, But in other ways, we can be like Him. We are persons like Him. We possess reasoning power, we have a conscience, we make moral distinctions, we're spiritual beings, and we could go on and on. We've talked about that a little bit before. Also, we are made to be in relationship with others of our kind, other humans. This reflects God, who was in perfect fellowship in the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—they eternally have been and always will be in perfect fellowship, and so we, that's reflected here. Their character is reflected in the in what God is doing. Let us, this is the Trinity, make man in our image, and then He says of us and and let them. You see, there's a plural again. You know, us and our, and then them, I'm talking about man and woman, and so. God created two sexes, male and female. That's God's design. Together, they are to carry out God's plan, as we will see in a minute. Their distinct maleness and femaleness work together in a complementary way. Um, and that maleness and femaleness, I've uh, you can reference uh, other lessons, I, the one I did a few weeks ago on women in the image of God, and then next week, Lord willing, I'll be teaching on men in the image of God. And so we'll we talk more about maleness and femaleness and, and what that means. So, I, I said, though, that their distinct maleness and femaleness, they work together in a complementary way. Well, how is that? Our second point, then. In God's image, man and woman are to rule the earth as partners. In God's image male man and woman are to rule the earth as partners. Twice. In verses twenty six and twenty eight, you may have noticed the Lord mentions that ruling over the earth is for them, not him. Okay, a lot of us misunderstand that. And we think okay, so the man was given the command to rule, you know, and somewhere in there the woman comes along, but that's not the way it is. We find here right off the bat, it is for them. Man and woman together as God's representatives are to exercise dominion over the earth. This means that they are both responsible persons. And so, uh, you know, so ladies, you might kind of like that idea of, okay, well, no, that's fine if you give it to the man. Okay. He's responsible, not me. Well, no, we all are responsible. Both sexes are responsible persons. Now, what feminists do with this is they claim that joint responsibility, the fact that we are both responsible, man and woman, joint responsibility, they say, demands identical roles, and that's where they go wrong. They say joint responsibility. In other words, they say, okay, if both man and woman are responsible, and on that part point they would agree, yes, they're both responsible. They say that requires that they have identical roles. Well, let me give you an example. So, years ago I worked for a company that included, believe it or not, all employees in the profit-sharing plan. Okay? And, and they assigned a profit target each year for us to hit, and then they would give us goals that we were all to work toward so that we could hit that target. In other words, we were all responsible to hit that target, every one of us. And they, throughout the year, we talk about that over and over again. We're all responsible. We're all in this together. and, And if we all work together and meet our goals, we will hit that target and we all share in, in the profits. So, the thing is, is, even though we were all responsible, our vol- roles varied widely. Okay? There was a clear hierarchy. And there were all different kinds of roles. There was a president. And there were vice presidents. And directors. And managers. And supervisors. And, and then all of, all of us at the time, you know, working bees, you know, as we say. and And so, you know, with all of our different roles, different jobs to do. But. Just because we were all responsible didn't mean that we all had identical roles. Because, you know, when I first joined that company, um, I had a very different role than the president. You know, and I got to know him, a great guy, and, and, you know, I'd fix his computer for him. So, you know, he loved seeing me come around. But I, I never had any idea that he and I had the same role. You know, it was very clear. You know, I had a little part of a desk I shared with somebody, and he had this nice big office, okay? It was really obvious that we did not have the same role. So mutual responsibility does not require identical roles. And indeed, what God is talking about here through Moses is that their mutual responsibility of man and woman to to subdue the earth or to exercise dominion does not mean they're going to have identical roles, okay? and In reality, I mean, life just doesn't work that way. Okay? It's just odd how uh, feminists think that all of a sudden this is different than everything else in life, right? And Because they, they don't like what God has said. Men and women are mutually responsible, but they have different roles. Now, there's some people who on the, on the opposite extreme... I want to get rid of that mutually term, but man and woman are mutually responsible, but they do have different roles. We need to say what the Bible says and hold on to all that the Bible says, regardless of whether somebody takes it and abuses it. Okay? We still need to stand on the word. So a key part of ruling, this isn't the only thing, but a key part of ruling over the earth is by procreation. And it isn't possible for one sex alone to accomplish this. Verse 26 spelled that out, this co-regency of dominion. God told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. There you see this mandate for dominion given to mankind, male and female. A big part of that is being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth so that it can be subdued. Subdue means to order everything on the earth so that... It fulfills the God's whole plan, which is to bring glory to Him, and and so that's what subdue means. I had a, a coworker at you know, one time; he was uh, very extreme right conservative, not a believer, um, and and he would often laugh, you know, about it. he'd read things, you know, um, about you know, and I know there's all this you know debate about you know we you know the uh, climate. Change and all those kinds of things and stuff, but he his view is, like, as a conservative, God said, even though he would not a believer, said, God said, you know, we are to subdue the earth. That means that we can just rape its resources and basically, you know, trash the earth, and that's fine. And that's what he took away from that. That isn't what subdue means. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever and completely trash the earth so that one day we end up where we can't. I'm not saying I'm not for climate change, okay? I'm way away from that in that sense. But I'm also one who says we do need to take care of it. Most of the people out there who are talking, they're not really... The things they say are just politically driven. They're not really interested in taking care of God's creation because, one, they don't believe it's His creation. But as believers, we should think of it. This is God's creation. He gave us this, and we need to take care of it. Now, I'm not a tree hugger, but I love national parks. You know, And I want us to take care of it because I want to enjoy it, right? And I want our kids to enjoy it and grandkids and so on. But at the same time, we need to... You know, you, you've got on both extremes the, the political things that just muddy everything, and, and we actually miss, again, what God actually said. Okay? We are in charge of this earth. And we do have the right to use it, but the goal is not to use it to our own benefit, but to God's glory. Okay, that's what this is about. You see, I know in all of these debates, whether it's within Christendom about, you know, evangelical feminism and and, and those of us who say, no, that's wrong, and... All of this, we need to keep remembering that it's about God and His glory. That's why He created the earth, that's why He put us on the earth, and that's why He put us in charge. Is to order everything on this earth, everything that's under our power and our control within our our little area to work to His glory. It's for His glory. And that should drive us, not our political ideas, whichever side that might come from. Think about uh, Isaiah 43, 7. <clears throat> I love that verse because it's just so crystal clear. It says that we were created for His glory. Okay, I, I just love that verse. We're created for His glory. See, there's creation, right? We are created for God's glory. That's why He put us here. Okay, third. In this partnership, man takes the lead and the woman helps him. Now we get into Genesis 2. So, you can turn on over. We're going to be looking at verse 18 and following Genesis 2. In this partnership, man takes the lead and the woman helps him. So, what happens here, and this is what uh, Ms. Stanton missed, is that Genesis 1 and 2, they seem there's some differences there. But Genesis 1 is a general overview of creation and what God is doing through Moses. He's saying, okay, let me walk you through all six days of creation. And I want you to see the high level, what's going on there. And I want you to see that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Okay. Okay. Then in chapter 2, we want to zero in here, and we're going to talk in covenant language, and he starts using the term Yahweh there, the Lord, as you see in all caps in your English maybe, is that it's a more detailed account of God creating man and woman, those who would be in covenant relationship with Him. While we're here, as thinking about this, we can glean a few more truths about about male headship, and and one of the things we need to do, and we're going to get to this in a later lesson, but uh, some people wrestling with this and trying to make sense of it, they they will end up elevating natural revelation above special revelation, and that's wrong. It's always special is up here, right? So God created Adam first. It wasn't like he said, oh, huh, okay, well, I happen to have created the guy first. So I guess he'll be the lead. That's the way it gets presented, and it's not that way. God decided that, okay, the male is going to be the lead, so I'm creating him first, okay? Because I want people to, when they read, they say, okay, who's first? Adam, okay? So, first, God wanted Adam to be the head, so he created Adam first. Paul is going to use that in First Timothy 2.13, right, when he talks about, you know, in... Can a woman exercise authority over a man and teach a man? Paul says no. Why? Well, one reason is that Adam was created first. In other words, he's the head. The woman is not the head. Okay? So, first, God wanted Adam to be the head, so he created Adam first. Second, when God gave the instructions about what to eat or not eat, only Adam was present. We find that in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. He talks about how the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "...from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, you'll die." Okay, He hadn't created woman yet. He gave this instruction to Adam only. And so, as head, then, when woman is, has been created... Adam will have the responsibility of passing that instruction along to his wife, okay? And that's going to be his. And so, as the head of the two of them, he has the responsibility of relating to her what God told him. And then a third thing from that same point, for male headship, the, the emphasis is on his responsibility to lead, okay? Okay? His, it's his responsibility to lead. We, these are things that we find that, you know, sometimes you, you read through this and, and you're not looking and you miss it. But he is given the responsibility to lead. Now, look at verse 18. So, woman hadn't been created yet. God gave him the command, the prohibition. And in verse 18, then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So he said it's not good, that was, that was the, the only thing in God's original creation that was not good, according to God, for man to be alone. But God had it planned, he had a reason for it. Now first, let's talk about this word alone. It has two ideas, it can mean a number of different things, but two of those apply here. The first is, it can mean lonely. And so you think about, Moses would use this later in Leviticus 13, that a leper was to live alone alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, guess what? That's going to be lonely. Okay? Adam was lonely without another person like himself for fellowship. But another way in which this word alone is used, which also applies here, is that it can refer to, alone, can refer to the inability one has without another person's help. So in other words, you can't do this alone. You can't do this by yourself, is the way we often will say it, okay? You know how a lot of times, you know, your kids are like, no, no, I can do it, I can do it, and you know they can't, okay? And you're like, no, you need help. And you take their little hands and you help them, and Adam needed help. And and it's just like, um, remember when... Moses tried to judge the people by himself, okay? And you remember his wise father-in-law comes along and he says, it's not good for you, dude. He said to him, pointed out, the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone there in Exodus 18. So neither could Adam do this work of ruling the earth alone. God knew that that was not going to work. He needed a helper. And so God set out to illustrate for Adam that he did need a helper. Look at verses 19 and 20. Moses says, And out of the ground Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So this was one way in which Adam was exercising dominion is God gave him the right to name everybody but himself. God named him. And he says, okay, now you name everything else, okay? Because I'm giving you the headship here, okay? And so he would name Adam would name whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. He says that a second time. Literally, that word helper uh, or the, uh, suitable helper suitable is a helper corresponding to him. And back in 1967, Derek Kidner, a commentator, written a lot of Old Testament commentaries, uh, he, in his commentary on Genesis, he said that this word that in NAS has suitable, um, what it, what it means is that the woman is to be the man's complement. Again, with E, not an I, right? Um, She's not just saying nice things about him, right? She's Filling his lack, okay? Um, She's corresponding to him in that way. And she would be his complement. And so then 20 years later, it was interesting, uh, exactly 20 years later, the, we had what I told you, I think it was last time, about complementarianism, right? And those of us who prefer that term, this is where we get it, from Genesis 2, 18 and 20. Okay, the word suitable, suitable doesn't sound real suitable for a label, for what we believe, but complement sounds better, and so we went with complementarian. Whether you like, like, like that term or not, that is where it came from. In 1987, uh, they laid out, remember I told you about that, the Danvers Statement and everything, and they came to call it complementarianism. It's based on this word from the Scriptures in two verses. MacArthur explains, The words of this verse emphasize man's need for a companion, a helper, and an equal. He was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of filling, multiplying, and taking dominion over the earth. And then Kevin DeYoung says, Only as a complementarian pair could Adam and Eve fill the earth and subdue it. So, woman was designed to be his helper a suitable helper one that was that would correspond to him that would fill his lack okay let's talk about that term helper a key way in which the woman brightly shines the image of god is by being a helper and we we've touched on that previous in a previous lesson but to say that again you see all three members of the trinity uh, you have a number of different passages where in the Old Testament, where God, we understand as God the Father, is called our Helper. Okay, our Helper, Helper. We looked at one this morning in Sunday school. This wasn't planned uh, in Psalm fifty-four, four. Okay, so that God, David, you know, recognizes our is His Helper. Okay, uh, forty-six, one is another one that I'm going to talk about in a moment here. Um, so. I know you ladies, when you hear, oh, I'm supposed to be His helper? Wow. Thanks. Right? It doesn't sound that great. Okay? And, but I want to encourage you that the same term is used for all three members of the Trinity. So I mentioned ones there with God the Father, and you go to, to John chapter uh, 14 through 16, and was it 16, I think, where it talks about um, the Holy Spirit... Or John 14, yeah, the Holy Spirit is a another helper, John 14, 16, okay? Another Jesus saying, another one like me, which he's calling himself helper, okay? Uh, also, 1 John 2, 1, that term advocate there is actually helper. Jesus is our helper, okay? That helps us to better understand woman's role. And so, for this idea I was talking about here, um, Alan Ross explains... The modern reader tends to think of a helper as someone of a lower status, an assistant to the one who is important. But the fact that this psalm, and he's writing here about Psalm 46.1, another place where helpers use, the fact that this psalm describes, describes Yahweh as the helper signifies it means much more. Basically, the word refers to providing what someone lacks or doing for someone what that person cannot do for himself. In other words, it ties in with a second definition of alone, right? So, man, it's not good for him to be alone. He can't do this on his own. So what does he need? A helper, which means somebody who comes and fills what another one lacks, something he can't do on his own, okay? Ray Ortland assures us that since the Bible portrays God as our helper, it proves that the helper role is a glorious one, worthy even of the Almighty. And then the Kostenbergers that I quoted at the beginning, they point out, since God is clearly not inferior to anyone, whatever the term helper entails, it's certainly not inferiority. And we need to understand that. We need to wrap our heads around that. The role of helper is one of dignity and value. Now, there there are some folks, conservatives, that they're not comfortable with this. And they actually come out and say, oh, no, when it's used of God, it means something different than it's used of woman. And then they try to explain that and end up basically proving what I just said. I haven't found one that can show that it's used differently because it's not. It just it just means the helper means that they're someone who fills what the other lacks, okay. And so it is a role of dignity and value. So back on uh, male headship, which you know we're kind of gleaning and gathering things on that topic, male headship is also seen in the fact that woman was made for the man. We saw that in verses eighteen and twenty. Uh, I you know. Uh, especially verse 20, I will make, let's see, not 20. Yeah, so 18, a helper suitable for him. And then, yeah, 20, a helper suitable for him. She was made for the man. This means their roles are not interchangeable. They're not reversible. You know, so we can't say with uh, evangelical feminists, they say, well, you know, and they try to work this out where... Okay, what's, what really should be going on is that man and woman are equal and the same. In other words, <clears throat> it doesn't matter which one is the head. They can take turns, they can divide it up, they, but they try to say that, you know, they both are the head. Well, that can't be, right? Um, but they try to try to make that work. The problem is, is that the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman, Eve was also made from the man, we see in verse 22. So let's look, starting in verse 21. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, and, and he closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones. Remember the rib and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So she came from him. And now another example of man's headship is that Adam, remember, he had now the headship, so he was given that to name all of creation, including the woman. And so God named Adam, and then Adam named woman. That is an example of his headship. Her name came from his. And so here in verse 23, when it's talking about she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man... A different word is used for man. Instead of Adam, it is Ish, I-S-H. It's pronounced Ish, not Ish. But he's called Ish. That's what God named him, also Adam and Ish. And then Adam said, well, I can see she came from me. And she corresponds to me. So I know what I'll name her. I'll take my name, Ish, and I'll make it feminine, Ishah okay because she came from me you see and so there's another way in which headship is taught here male headship is taught the woman's name came from the man's name and so then moses comments on this and he adds that the man is to cleave to his wife now cleave was this hebrew word was used for things that you know stick together and and so and the idea is that, especially when it's used of persons, clinging to someone in affection and loyalty. Okay? And you think about the psalmist in Psalm 119.31. He talks about how he clings to God's testimonies, just one of the names of God's word that he gives throughout. Right? So God's testimonies, God's word, he clings to it. He holds to it with affection. I love God's word, which if you, know, you read Psalm 119, you get that pretty clearly, right? That he loves God's word. And he's loyal to it. He clings to it. That is how the man is to cling to his wife. In this partnership, husbands must cling to their wife in deep affection and steadfast loyalty. That's how they become one flesh that Moses talks about here. It's a complete unity, a unity of the whole person. It doesn't mean just the physical unity. It does. That's part of it. That's not all of it. And we'll talk about that more in Ephesians 5 when when Paul quotes this verse. We'll talk more about what that unity is referring to. And we'll go into more depth with it. But just for now, think about this. Again, Alan Ross said, "Um, God intended husband and wife to be a spiritual, functional unity, walking in integrity, serving God, and keeping His commandments Together, there's that idea of unity. Ray Ortland says of this unity, it is the profound fusion of two lives into one shared life together. So, the fusion into of two lives into one shared life together, by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage, it is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. Okay, so let's go to the, let's see. Uh, A couple slides. There we go. Thank you. Um, Looking at this, so this is what comes out of Genesis one and two. Okay, so God's designed this one flesh partnership. It's not what we find on the left. I know there are a lot of guys out there teaching and the conservative side that that seems to be what they're saying. And and the thing that it seems to me is that I don't I don't know their motives, but. It's like they're afraid, if I teach God's Word, women are going to get the wrong idea, my wife's going to want to try to boss me around, and women are going to want to be pastors. Okay? Well, that might happen. But all you have to do is take her back to God's Word. Okay? Don't kind of, you know, pull back on God's Word just because you think they might take it wrong. Okay? Okay? You just take them back to God's Word, okay? You want to boss me around, honey? No. Look at what the Bible says, okay? You want to be pastor, lady? No. Let's go look and see what Paul said there, okay? And and so, what's going on? It's not that the husband is up there by himself. You don't get that idea at all in Genesis 1 and 2. He is not by himself. There's this partnership, this oneness, this this him clinging to her, cleaving to her, that's what you find in Genesis 1 and 2, okay? And, and so, it's not what's in the middle there, okay? That's the, the feminist view, where, okay, they get the together part right, but they get their roles completely wrong. They say they're both head, co-head, okay? They share the headship, and however that might work out, okay, that's wrong too, That is not what the Bible said. And if you're afraid of that happening by teaching what the Word says, don't. Just keep going back to the Word. Keep going back to the Word, right? This is what it says. What it actually is saying in Genesis 1 and 2 is this, on the right there, where the man and the woman are together. There's that partnership. They are clinging he's clinging to his wife, she is fulfilling his lack and and he is the head, she's not. He's the head and she's the helper. Okay, we keep that clear. And guys I gave you a sheriff's star just so you'll feel better about that. Okay? <laughs> well let me give you an idea of one one way that what this might look like. Uh, and this won't look like your family, your marriage, but hopefully you can take away some uh, things that you can say, yeah, you know, I can do more of this. Uh, Connie and I have worked at this, I haven't told her this part yet, uh, we've uh, worked on this kind of partnership all along in, in our relationship. It hasn't always gone right, but uh, like even today, she joins me in couples counseling. Um, she has valuable insights uh, when we are uh, counseling people, uh, valuable input. We confer before and after our sessions. Uh, we take long walks almost every day, and we talk about the upcoming sermons. I tell her what I'm I'm working on and thinking and learning and planning to say, and, and she'll sometimes like, well, you might think about that, you know. Um, we talk about counseling situations. We talk about, you know, how how do we respond to all the craziness in the world, the, the issues in culture and in church. Uh, Sunday mornings at breakfast, even this morning, I give her a preview of the sermon that's coming, and then we talk about it. And she even researches articles and podcasts. And she's good at that. She's good at, you know, Instagram and everything like that. Not even, I just know the name. That's it, you know. And, and and she'll say, hey, you might find this helpful. Hey, here's this. And, you know, she's not co-pastor, but she has an ongoing impact on the work that God has given me to do. And God, God is my help. With David, I say, God is my help. He is my helper. And often his help comes I I wouldn't be able to say this. Uh, his help comes often through the one he's blessed me with 40 years ago. Men, that's, that's what you want. And ladies, that's what you want to be. Okay? It's going to look different than ours. Okay, But there should be some things that look the same. Um, it's a precious thing. Um, And that's why that slide means a lot to me, because you get it right, it's beautiful. Um, Men, don't be afraid of elevating your wife to where God originally created her and put her. Don't be afraid of that. It's only a blessing. Well, as we turn our attention now to the one who is our help, our helper, in such a deeply profound way. God the Father has presented our, as our helper. You know, the, the psalmists talk about, you know, being in need of salvation. Sometimes that was kind of on the earthly level. I need to be delivered from my enemies. But it was a, a picture of the need that we, we all had of being delivered from our greatest enemy, sin. And Jesus, the one who Hebrews tells us perfectly reflected his, his father's image because he was God, is God. He is such a precious helper. And that help comes out so clearly to us and so beautifully to us. Here at the Lord's table. And, and He's so good to us that when He knew He had to return to His Father in Heaven, He said, Oh, don't, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another helper. And He'll not just be with you. He'll actually be in you. Another helper. just one that's just like me. Why? Because it's just the third member of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit. You know, Adam represented our race, but he failed miserably. And don't ever think that if you were in that position you would have done differently because every time you sin you prove that you would have done the same thing okay he failed miserably but Romans 5 as I mentioned earlier we had a another man represent us at least those of us who will trust in him he's our representative the second Adam Jesus the Messiah He represented His people, those who will trust in Him. He represented us. And He succeeded triumphantly. It looked like a miserable disaster at first. Died. Buried. Done. Finished. You couldn't get more final than that. Except we're talking about God the Son. He saw no finality there. Except that he had paid our price in full and his work was done and he raised himself as he said he would and he triumphed on the cross he triumphed over our sin and in the grave he tri- or, in the grave he triumphed over death so that we might live in him and with him forever He humbled Himself. We come to the table and we remember these beautiful truths. He humbled Himself. He sought our greatest good, salvation from our greatest enemy, sin. Our greatest problem. He died on the cross and He redeemed us. Oh, what a Savior. Let's meditate on that.